Good evening. Welcome to episode eight of the Pop Punk Project. My name is Mike, joined tonight by my friend Keenan. Keenan, how are you this fine evening? Michael, I appreciate you asking me that. I'm doing great this fine evening. How are you? I'm wonderful. Thank you for asking. Might you know what we'll be discussing this fine evening? Michael, this fine evening we shall be discussing Green Day's breakthrough album, Dookie. <laughs> shall we saunter in? Exquisite. So, Keenan, Dookie, as we had mentioned, is Green Day's breakout album, but it was actually their third studio album and their major label debut. I believe the one right before this was Kerplunk, right? Correct. Kerplunk had moderate success, I would say, but this really blew it out of the water. I think Kerplunk was considered sort of an underground success. Kerplunk was an underground success, Keenan. And before that, they had their debut album, 39 Smooth, which, if I'm being honest, I think was pretty forgettable. Wow. You're saying Green Day's debut album was forgettable? I'm saying I've never really listened to it. <laughs> okay. So you, you can't forget something you've never even heard. I guess you're right. Well, whatever. There's a reason why we chose to start with their third album as opposed to their first album. How about that? Because we know it. <laughs> 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 and that's the only reason why. <laughs> Green Day was and is comprised of lead singer and guitarist Billy Joe Armstrong, bassist and backing vocalist Mike Durnt, and drummer and backing vocalist Trey Cool. I will say one of the cool things about Green Day is they've had this same lineup for almost their entire existence. I think... They may have had a different drummer before Trey Cool during that first album, maybe. Yeah, I think Trey Cool joined them in 1990 and they formed in 1987. So in the grand scheme of things, it's essentially been this trio the entire time. It's pretty incredible that you can stay bandmates for that long because we know so many stories of pop punk groups and just musical artists that don't stick around that long, don't stay together. Different people move in and out. That's right. I think part of their recipe for success is they have taken time off in between albums, you know, like year long periods where they would just stop recording, stop touring. And that probably helped them keep some sort of sanity and camaraderie with one another. So Dookie was released on February 1st, 1994 by Reprise Records. It was the band's first collaboration with producer Rob Cavello who would go on to produce many of their later albums as well, including American Idiot, their recent albums Uno Dos and Trey, I think. It was recorded in late 1993 at Fantasy Studios in Berkeley, California, and it was written mostly by frontman Billy Joe Armstrong. I think we'll get to this, but I believe that Mike Durnt wrote one song and then Trey Cool wrote that hidden track at the very end of the album, but Billy Joe Armstrong wrote the vast majority of this album. Even if you aren't a big Green Day fan, there's a good chance that you are familiar with a couple of the songs on this album because I know we usually try to point out the singles, but on this one, there's five singles, so we might have a hard time keeping them straight. 
Yeah, there were so many hits. That's right. Longview, Basket Case, Welcome to Paradise, When I Come Around, and She. It received critical acclaim upon its release, and get this, Mike, they won a Grammy Award for Best Alternative Album 1995. That's how big this was. They actually secured a Grammy because of it. The general public conceded that this was a very good album. Yeah. The Hollywood snobs. Yeah. The coastal elites. All the suits. All those suits. It did obtain worldwide success. It reached number two in the U.S. and the top five in several other countries. It's credited with bringing pop punk to the mainstream popularity, and it really propelled Green Day into superstardom. I don't think we've heard this one before, Keenan. It sold over 20 million copies, making it the band's best-selling album of all time, and it's diamond status. Have we had a diamond album yet? I don't believe we've discussed a diamond album yet. This is new to me. I might be speaking out of turn here, but I'm not sure if we ever will. <laughs> it's a shame, but yeah, 20 that's million. how crazy it is. Yeah. Yeah. One thing you did say, Mike, it's credited with bringing punk rock to the mainstream. Could this be the first pop punk album of all time? I'm sure that's a very treacherous bridge to cross. I'm sure there's much debate about that, but yeah, I would argue if you ask most people, they would probably say this was the definitive launching point for this genre into mainstream popularity, kind of blending the radio-friendly pop of the day with the more seedy underbelly punk genre from the club scenes and bands that your mom and dad probably wouldn't hear on the radio. I would agree with that. And I think there are some cool stories about the guys in Green Day sitting down with multiple record executives and these executives trying to vie for their business and trying to get them to come and sign record deals with, with them. So clearly they were well sought out. Everybody wanted them to be the face of pop punk, if you will. Right. And it's funny because I'm sure Green Day is still dealing with this to this day, but a reporter for the New York Times was complimentary of the album and his review, but he said that Dookie's pop sound only remotely resembled punk music. So the band didn't respond for a long time to these comments, but later they claimed that they were just trying to be themselves that it's their band, and they can do whatever they want. Love it. So you can argue over what fits into a particular genre if you want. They are just trying to have a good time and make some good tunes. This is what the Suits said about Blink-182 also. They said that they were sellouts for making a radio-friendly, poppy album in Enema of the State, but Blink-182 didn't care. You're exactly right. Can you please enlighten me? What in the world is going on here? Oh, Mike, February 1994 was a wild time. First of all, we were three years old. Yeah. We were just little babes. Three is a tough age. Three was tough. What do they call those? The, the tough threes. <laughs> <laughs> the, the tough old threes. Uh, yeah, that's, that's what they all say. February 1, to start off our month, Jeff Galuli pleads guilty for his part in the attack on American Olympic figure skater Nancy Kerrigan. He pled guilty and confessed to racketeering in exchange for testimony implicating his ex-wife, also figure skater, Tanya Harding. Remember that whole debacle? 
yeah, Keenan, I guess this must have gone on for a while if we were three at the time, and I still remember this happening. I think it's kind of gained more intrigue recently with the explosion of true crime in pop culture. I know they made that movie, I, Tanya, and this, of course, was one of the most baffling, odd cases from from back in the day, back in the 90s. Yeah. The 90s were kind of a weird time for stuff like this. Yeah, it was certainly talked about for years to come. So I don't know if we remember it at three years old, but we certainly heard about it several years later. Right. Hey, Keenan, I don't think I ever watched this show, but do you remember playing the game Where in the World is Carmen Sandiego? Yes, of course. It was awesome. So the TV show debuted February 5th on Fox TV. I remember the TV show, and I can hear the theme song in my head right now. Where in the world is Carmen Sandiego? Yeah, so you remember it. I think that was the TV show. It was also the video Okay, then I guess I did watch it, but I think it was one of those shows that was on, it was kind of on in the afternoon. I don't know if I ever really tuned in, but I, I do remember the song. Yeah. The game I'm referring to, I'm not sure if you're referring to the same one, was You Spin a Globe. Mm-hmm. Okay. And then you just stick your finger down? Yep. Okay. I wasn't sure if you were referring to like a computer game or something. Well, I do remember... Because I think I did play computer games too. I remember a TV show, a computer game, and a board game. Oh, you had a board game. Yeah, wait. What did you just say? I thought you were talking about the board game. No, I was just saying it was just a random game where you would spin a globe. Oh. Like a, a desk globe and then just... I don't know if that was even... A fun game or not, but that's what Sounds I would pretty do. Pretty lame, but yeah. <laughs> Sounds like you can't afford the board game, so you would spin a globe and call it a game. Kids, go get the globe. Yeah. It's game night. I feel like people don't have globes anymore unless you're trying to show off some sort of prominence or stature. Yeah, well, I think with the invention of Google Maps, uh, <laughs> the globe saw itself out. So, oh, where is Belize? <laughs> Let me spin this around a little bit. <laughs> or if you have one of those, like, have you ever seen those, like, whiskey tables where the globe just opens up? Those are cool. Yeah. I would buy it's one of those. It's just a place to hide your drinks. That's a cool invention. I would buy one yeah, of those. Yeah, it is. It's like, you think I'm scholarly and learned when in actuality I just like drinking in my I'm office. I'm just boozing during the day. Yeah. <laughs> That's, like, uh, very Mad Men-esque. Extremely. Extremely. February 12th, the 17th Winter Olympic Games open in Lillehammer, Norway. Mike, you ever been to Lillehammer? Ken, I've never been to Norway, period. Oh, boy. Lillehammer. It's beautiful this time of year. Norway? So that's big. You love the Olympics. Are you a winter or summer Olympic guy? Summer, dude. Is anybody a winter? Uh, yeah, there's some bros out there that like the Winter Olympics. Look, all I can say is if you're a Winter Olympic supporter, you must be a trust fund baby, <laughs> ski resort, daddy's boy, buy your own skis, no rentals. Wow, sexist too. Loser. How about that for a callback? Yeah. Also, ready for this? February 12th was an insane day for news in 1994. <laughs> the painting The Scream by Norwegian painter Edvard Munch. Is that how you pronounce his name? I think it is, yeah. Okay, cool. <laughs> is stolen in Oslo. Dude, that's crazy. That is crazy. That's... All this 
Scandinavian chaos, the Olympics open up, this is stolen. I guess they used the Olympics as probably a cover. Yeah, I'm sure there was tons of people just sneak in, steal one of the most famous paintings in the world, sneak right on out. Yeah, probably very easy. That doesn't really happen that much anymore, right? Like Stealing paintings? I mean, according to National Treasure, Nick Cage is still <laughs> at it, you know? Yeah, true. I just feel like people don't really care anymore. <laughs> About paintings? Yeah. Yeah, I think you're probably right. I can just Google image the (laughs) screen if I want to. (laughs) Uh, And then finally, this might be the biggest news of February 12th. Huge. Model Anna Nicole Smith hospitalized for a drug overdose. Oh, Anna Nicole. I mean, that is just a sad day for news. Except for the Olympics, I guess. Man, that's sad because when did she die? 2005? Something like that, yeah. It was early in our high school careers. I remember that being like, a big celebrity death early in high school. Yeah. So things really did not get much better for her. That's a shame. No, she had a tough go. But, you know, at least she got that old guy's money. <laughs> Maybe she would have had a better life if she didn't. Whoa. Well, money doesn't always lead to happiness, Mike. That's true, Keenan. Wow. February 12th was crazy. Wasn't that a crazy day for the news? Yeah. A lot going on. You just imagine, like, the evening news interrupting their story about the Winter Olympics, world famous painting being stolen with breaking news that Anna Nicole Smith is <laughs> overdosed. Yeah. Well, certainly in America. Yeah. That was, I would say that, that probably was the top news story of the day in America. Bump it. Bump it. <laughs> <laughs> February 18th. Oh, listen to this, Mike. The Shreveport Pirates joined the Canadian Football <laughs> League as the fourth U.S. based team. They can't even figure out in Canada that we need to throw in some Shreveport teams to help them out. Okay, where is Shreveport? Are you serious, Mike? Everybody knows it's in Louisiana. (laughs) Oh, my God. (laughs) So it's not even like, I thought it was like near Rochester, New York or something. Yeah, something close to Canada. Nope, they had to dig deep to find another team to fill out the uh, Canadian Football League. Oh, man. Could you imagine a Canadian talking to a Cajun? It would be an interesting conversation. Oh, rules are a bit different, don't you know? Down here in the bayou, we do things about... The Cajun accent is really hard to nail. It's like kind of French, but kind of like Southern. Oh, yeah, you're right. It's weird, yeah. So, and Canadian's kind of French, but kind of English. Wait, so it actually makes perfect sense. <laughs> Maybe they really just got along, they could understand one another. They're just bridging the two French peoples. Those northerners make fun of both our accents. <laughs> don't you know? <laughs> But here's the sad news, Mike. So founded February 18th, 1994, folded 1995. <laughs> I hate to see it. Cannot get it up and running. So the CFL's still going on, just the Shreveport Pirates? Yeah, Shreveport's out. Although, I don't know if the Canadian Football League has functioned continuously since yeah. 1994. I think they might have been sort of in and out. I hear about them every once in a while. I know Johnny Manziel played on a team for a couple games and... Yeah, he played for the Shreveport Pirates. (laughs) (laughs) And then some famous birthdays, Mike. Listen to this. February 1st, British pop icon Harry Styles. Harry Styles. He's not even just a pop icon anymore, Keenan. He's a a lifestyle icon. Yeah, he's one of the most famous people today. He's on my Instagram ads saying that he's on this app. His voice helps you fall asleep. Have you seen those? No, but that sounds incredible and something I'm probably going to download. 
it's one of those sleep apps where you just put it on and people read you stories or just it's like ASMR or something. And he just talks? I guess he's just in the ad, so I'm guessing his voice is on there somehow. Oh, that sounds incredible. Saying, Hi, this is Harry Styles. Why don't you just lay your head on the pillow? Actually, could you just record that for me so I can fall asleep? Yeah, I'm sure there's some subscription, so I'll just record like a three hour track. Okay, perfect. It doesn't matter. You only listen to the like first five or ten minutes before you fall asleep anyway. That's a good point, yeah. It's a waste of your money. And then also February 1st, Julia Garner, the American actress, she plays Ruth in Ozark. Do you watch Ozark? I don't. Oh, man. She's the best. No offense, but like she's been in so much other stuff other than Ozark. Has she? She's been in Capital One commercials. That is so much other stuff. You're right. <laughs> <laughs> she was Ben Affleck's wife. Alias? That was a huge show. No, 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 not... Oh, Julia Garner. Yeah, what? <laughs> it's like you're saying Jennifer Garner. No, Julia Garner. Okay, well, I haven't seen Ozark, and you can understand my confusion as why you would only say Ozark. <laughs> yeah, n- now I kind of get it, yeah. No, totally different person. You think Jennifer Garner is that young? She's younger than us? <laughs> you think she was born in 1994? I kind of forgot we were doing actual dates of birth, you know? You're right. That isn't what I meant when I said birth date. (sighs) Yeah, you're right. That was stupid. That was like three different points of stupid. And then later in the month, the final birthday, February 23rd, Dakota Fanning from I Am Sam, Man of Fire, very famous actress. She was in Signs. She was in Signs. That's right. I tried out for that movie. Did you? Yeah, that was the the third movie I tried out for after the other two I told you about, Unbreakable and Big Daddy. So you were going to be the little kid that like sticks the tinfoil on his head and sets the cups of water all over the place? Yeah, I was going to be the weirdo. You could have, man. I know. It's it's best not to think about. You would have been perfect in that role. I know. That's basically me. Wild month for the news, Mike. A lot going on there. It really is. Thank God this is our first album we done in 94 because those are some fresh stories feels nice it's the first album we did in the 90s right or was enema the state in the 90s enema was in 99 so our second 90s album this is certainly the earliest album we did and this is definitely not news that we would have known about no way not at all well that's awesome keenan thanks for sharing hey no problem obviously we were not old enough to listen to this album when it first came out do you remember the first time you listened to this album or your first experience with Green Day or was it with Dookie or another album? Yeah. So my first Green Day experience was with this album and it wasn't when it came out, but it was shockingly not long afterwards. Somebody in my family, my mom, my dad, an aunt and uncle, I can't really remember exactly, but somebody in my family thought that it would be a great idea to buy this album for me and my brother when I was like seven or eight. He mm-hmm. was like 10, maybe. And my parents were just like, okay, here you go. Have a listen. And I remember the first time listening through it with them. And they were like, no, 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 no. <laughs> and so my parents then I think listened to it themselves and picked out the songs we were allowed to listen to. And <laughs> it was not that many of them. There were a few that were definitely off limits. One of them that I remember vividly was Longview. My mom was like, you are never allowed to listen to Longview. And so 
Shane and I had this album that we basically would listen to together and we would be like, okay, track seven, nope, skip. Okay, okay, let's listen to eight. Okay, track nine, nope, have to skip that one. Okay, on a track 10, we're, that's a good one. We can listen to that one. Okay, uh, 11, all right, let's, let's move on. It was like a very bizarre listening experience. But so I knew a lot of these songs when I was like seven or eight, really, really young. This was definitely the first pop punk album I had ever listened to. That's awesome. Do you remember how old you were when you you and Shane, you know, maybe we should just listen to the opening 10 seconds of Longview? Oh, it was immediate. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> when our parents weren't around, like we would be like, what's Longview all about? And the funny thing was at the time, we would hear a couple curse words and we'd be like, oh, that's pretty bad. That's why they don't want us listening to it. But we had no idea what the actual songs were about. Right. We didn't know it went way beyond that. So right. honestly, it was kind of lost on us. Like we heard a couple naughty words, but we didn't get the whole, the whole picture. But yeah, dude, we were like, we were sneaking these songs left and right. I remember listening to Longview and thinking I was getting away with something so bad. It was great. You were. Yeah, you were in three, but you were not far off. That's an incredibly early age to be listening to Dookie. Yeah, it's, it makes you question the parenting a little bit, so... Mom and dad, if you're listening, I don't know if you knew I was sneaking these songs in, but I was. Don't worry. They're not listening. Yeah, good point. Uh, <laughs> I wonder what the thought process was of your aunt or uncle or whoever. Like, uh, the kids like the Dookie, right? <laughs> yeah. Dookie, that's a fun sounding name. But it's also funny, like, parental advisory these days is so sophisticated. You can lock kids out of TV shows or networks. Yeah. Back then, parental advisory was... Don't listen to this song or this song. I know. We're going to have to explain everything to our kids because they're not going to be able to stumble upon it themselves. Uh, that's how you learn. That's how we learned. Just leaving everything unlocked. Just have at it, Jack. So then what's your experience? I take it you didn't listen to this album when you were that young. No, not when I was seven. It still was one of the first pop punk albums that I bought. One of the first bands I got into is Good Charlotte and then Reliant K. And Green Day, I think, followed shortly thereafter. So I don't know if I bought Dookie around the 2003, like the 6th or 7th grade mark of my life, or whether it was right around the same time as American Idiot came out. I think American Idiot came out 2004. I either bought Dookie right before American Idiot or around the exact same time because I knew that I liked these Green Day songs. Okay. So you bought this when you were really getting into pop punk. Yeah, exactly. But like I mentioned earlier, there were so many singles off of this album. I was already familiar with many of the songs going into my first full listen of the album. Right. After listening to this and American Idiot, I got really, really into Green Day. So my Uncle Jack actually had a ton of their other albums kind of the ones in between Dookie and American Idiot. So I remember one family party, I probably had like a Green Day t-shirt or something. He's like, oh, I'll burn you some some Green Day albums. So I listened to, you know, Nimrod, Insomniac, all the other ones. I like couldn't get enough Green Day at that point in my life. So, but yeah, this has always been one of the landmark albums for pop punk in general and definitely one that I always go back to as a defining moment when I'm like, oh man, I love this music. Yeah, no doubt. A lot of the themes were centered around the experiences that the band members were having around that time. In particular, Billy Joe Armstrong's experiences. Most of the songs are just based on his life, his feelings, things like that. 
some of the themes that are covered include anxiety, panic attacks, depression, boredom, divorce, ex-girlfriends, sexual orientation, which is an interesting one that we don't mm-hmm. cover that often. Masturbation, which comes up a couple times, which we also don't see too often. It's definitely a mixed bag, but somehow they all go together really well. I mean, he's basically covering all the really complex and often confusing things that you're experiencing as a teenager or young adult. Right. Those are all the things that you're frequently questioning and are confused about. It's all included. And most of the songs, while they go into pretty deep themes, they are structured in a pretty straightforward pop punk manner, I would say. I don't play guitar, so can you explain like the... It's it's mostly just like verse, chorus, verse, chorus, right? Yeah, and I would say that it's probably partially a product of the times. I think it was just very early pop punk, so these guys were defining the sound in a lot of ways, and they were establishing pop punk. But it's a very simple song structure. There's like three to four chord songs, a lot of power chords. If you play guitar, you know that power chords are sort of the foundation of a lot of punk, a lot of rock. These days, most genres, actually. Right. Uh, it's a very raw sound with few sound effects. I think on the guitar and I guess sometimes on the bass, there's just simple distortion. And you're right, that structure is very straightforward. Verse, chorus, verse, chorus. Usually they'll throw in a bridge, chorus, end of song. And so a lot of other songs have followed that afterwards, but it seems like they've perfected it. And the length of the songs is also kind of interesting. A lot shorter songs than what we've heard before. I would say in albums past, typical songs are like three to four minutes, sometimes over that. Right. These songs across the board average like two and a half minutes. They're quick. They're like quick hits. Right. And I was surprised in reading through a lot of these lyrics. What Billy Joe has written a lot of the time is very thought-provoking. But a lot of these lines get repeated pretty consistently. Yeah. So whereas some bands you might find three different verses and a couple choruses, but the lines are changed in the chorus. It's just the same melody. Mm -hmm. There's a lot of the same lines repeated over and over in these songs. And yeah. I'm sure that was to drive whatever point, whatever thought was in his head to drive that home through an individual song. But Yeah, absolutely. And then the final thing to note is that the last three episodes we discussed, Fall Out Boy, Taking Back Sunday, and Brand New, and those three bands are known for their convoluted, complex titles that often don't relate to the song. These guys, it's very simple song titles. Oftentimes it's plucked right out of the chorus. You know what the song's more or less going to be about when you read the title of the song. Very straightforward, like the structure. I wonder if that had anything to do with the fact that this was their first album released on a major label. I wonder if they kind of had any influence in pulling strings like, no, we we want to send this one to radio, so just use... When I Come Around, that's the name of the song. That's the chorus. That's what everybody's going to remember from the song. That's the title. Yeah, 
I wouldn't be surprised if that was the case. And another reason why I think maybe there could have been some higher ups pulling strings with, you know, the titles of this album was because I didn't realize this until I was reading through, but the original name of this album, which again is Dookie, gross enough in and of itself, <laughs> but so the name of the album is actually a reference to the band members often suffering from diarrhea, um, which they refer to as liquid dookie. <laughs> and this was because they were always eating like bad or rotting food on tour. Or... Wait, are you serious? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> what? That's yeah. hilarious. But they were actually going to keep the entire thing and just call the album liquid dookie. <laughs> like not just dookie, but liquid dookie. Oh my God. But That would have been awesome. They decided that would have been a little too gross. <laughs> so they softened it and just made it dookie. Yeah. And you know what? Now that I think about it, maybe we can find this for the show notes, but I should have gone back and looked for the Grammy announcement of them saying, and the winner is Green Day, dookie. <laughs> but it, yeah. it would have been 10 times better if, I don't know, Stevie Wonder's up there. Or yeah. who, who would be up there? Sting? And yeah. the winner is Green Day for the album Liquid Dookie. <laughs> <laughs> I just love Liquid Dookie. That's hilarious. But at the end of the day, I think it probably was a smart title change. I don't know if this album would have been, maybe it wouldn't have made any difference whatsoever. But Honestly, I would have liked it a lot better if they kept it. <laughs> Your parents wouldn't have given it to you at all. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, maybe not. Wow, that would have changed a lot of things. If that adjective was on there... It would have been like, absolutely not. Mm. The butterfly effect, yeah. That is an adjective, right? In that yeah. liquid dookie? Yeah, it's definitely an adjective. Awesome. If you disagree, find us at poppunkproj at gmail.com. I actually <laughs> typed out and parsed every sentence of your episode, yeah. and you could really use a grammar lesson. <laughs> and then finally, the other cool thing about this album, the artwork, really stand out. If you look at the album cover, it's this cartoonish scene of a plane dropping a bomb on some crazy chaotic event or activity that's going on. Obviously, as a little kid, you look at that and you love that cover. And it's, you know, there's so much going on. There's so much to look right. at. It almost feels like a Where's Waldo picture because there's all these different figures and people throwing stuff at each other and people shooting each other with slingshots. There's monkeys throwing dookie. I know that's on there. There are monkeys throwing dookie. There's a bad year blimp instead of the good year blimp. Whoa. That's deep. But you're right. It is an awesome album cover, and you always kind of see something new. And Green Day hired an East Bay artist, which is where they were from, who is renowned for drawing pictures like this. And it depicts a very famous street in Berkeley called Telegraph Avenue, which is like their historic kind of cultural street with a lot of restaurants and stores and shops and it's always very lively and a lot going on and so you know they picture this plane dropping a bomb on it and so it's kind of cool especially if you're from the east bay if you're from the bay area it must be cool to kind of see that and be like oh yeah i know that that area that they're trying to destroy destroy yeah <laughs> oh, i'm very familiar with that area that they're bombing i'm actually there right now <laughs> Sometimes the cover is just a picture of the band. Sometimes it's something simple. And sometimes it's something really cool like this. So in this case, 
it's always reminded me, you know, I'm a huge Beatles fan. It reminds me of the Sgt. Pepper's album cover because that one has a ton of different people and cardboard cutouts. So there's always like something new you find every time you look at it. Like you're able to identify a new person or yeah, that you didn't see the last time you looked at it. That's exactly like this. Yeah, exactly like this. If you have a minute, take a look at it and just kind of go through it because there's cool things to see. Track number one, Burnout. Keenan, I say this almost every week. Don't do it, Mike. I know you're tired of it. I'm sick of it. Maybe this will be the last one for a while. Maybe it won't, but this is the ultimate opening track. Oh, boy. I would argue of every album we've discussed, there is no opening song that's better than this one. Really? I think so. The drum beat, the first line, I know you know what it is. I declare I don't care no more. That's like when the opening paragraph of a novel you realize was foreshadowing the conclusion. Like, they sum up the entire album in that first line. They just decide, you know, let's go on and sing about it some more for a couple more songs. That ultimate apathy and confession, a declaration, I don't care anymore. When you hear that, whether you're 7 or 13, you're like, Okay, I want to hear what these guys have to say. Wow, that's a big statement. I'm standing by it. I like that. And I never really thought of it that way, but I think you're totally right. Wow. Growing up and out and getting bored, right? We're going to get some stuff off our chest, and here it is. I don't care anymore. Let's listen to it. So I think it's almost the perfect song for us right now because as the title suggests, it's about feeling like you're burning out. You're growing up, you're burnt out, you're not hip, you're not with it anymore. I mean, come on, look at us, Mike. We're basically pop punk burnouts right now. I think we might be living Hannah Montana style, the best of both worlds. There you go. I mean, we've burnt out in some sense, but we've also grown up a little bit, too. That's true. We have. A little bit. We come to find the real grown-ups were us all along. Whoa. little Shyamalan twist there? Yeah. But you're right. There is that feeling when you're going through your... I guess it's earlier for others. For Billy Joe Armstrong, it was his teens, but I think for me, it was probably my mid to late 20s. Yeah. When I'm like, am I doing this right should i be more mature should i be kicking old habits to the curb or go out in a ball of flames in a blaze of glory i think you're right i think his burnout is definitely different from ours in the song he says i'm growing bored in my smoked out boring room my hair is shagging in my eyes that obviously doesn't relate to us that's more of like your late teens early 20s burnout you're smoking too many doobies You're letting your hair grow long. Yeah, parents are trying to make you cut your hair. Exactly, yeah. Trying to kick you out of the house a little bit. So that's really what type of burnout he's talking about. But 
you can't help but relate it to what you're going through now. And for me, it's definitely like, I look at all the young kids who are on TikTok who are doing that weird Fortnite dance that I don't understand and flossing and whatever else they're doing. And it's just like, when did that become cool? If you were doing those things when you were our age, weren't you typically like the not cool people? Dude, TikTok is a whole different culture. It's literally foreign to us. I've gotten some heat, by the way, on the Simple Plan episode when we were talking about TikTok and how we didn't get it. Yeah. I've had a lot of people our age reach out to me and say, oh, dude, you're missing out. You love TikTok. Here's the thing. I have the app downloaded. I just don't think that the functionality is intuitive. I, I don't know where anything is. I don't know how to find anything. Yeah. It seems like things are just scattered about. Like, there's some sort of formula on Instagram and Twitter and Facebook where it's like, all right, I can just scroll through this feed of bullshit. That's infinite. Yeah. But with TikTok, it's like there's different trends. And maybe if I spend some time on it, I just don't I don't feel like it. Yeah. It's sad because we are at the point where we're like, we don't want to learn new things. Can't teach an old dog new tricks. It's kind of like Vine. Like if I could watch hours and hours of Vine compilations. I love Vine. But I never wanted to go on Vine and find all those by myself. Right, right. If you show me the 10 Simple Plan videos that are the funniest ones back to back, I would happily watch them. Does that make sense? Yeah, totally. I guess I'm too lazy. Maybe I am burning out. (laughs) Did we just come to like a big moment here for you? Yeah, I think we did. (laughs) So growing up and burning out, I guess they're opposites, but which one's the positive and which one's the negative? Like, you know the saying, is it better to burn out or to fade away? Yeah, of course. I don't know. I guess it depends who you ask. So that's, you want to stay relevant. You want to stay active and involved. Well, the point of burning out is that you don't get to that point where you fade away. You don't right. get to that point where you're not relevant anymore. So I don't know. It's kind of a trade-off. I think I would still prefer fading away. I thought you just said you wanted to go out in a f- flame of glory or whatever you just said. I changed my mind. Okay. I'm saying <laughs> <laughs> That's what I wanted to do in my mid-20s. Oh, okay. I got yeah. you. Yeah. Now that I I'm see. 30 and thriving, might I add. You're definitely thriving, yeah. I think fading away sounds very nice. <laughs> <laughs> nice casual fade away? Sure. I think I'll just go up to Montauk and fade away. <laughs> Is that how you fade away? Spend a weekend in Martha's Vineyard and fade away for a while. I've got a lot to learn. I have no idea, man. <laughs> I think we're reading too much into Billy Joe Armstrong's 16-year-old psyche. Or we're not reading enough into it. Right. I mean, I'm sure he honestly is more into his own brains than we are. Well, the point of this song, I think, is everybody at some point in time has a feeling like they're burning out. They're not connected with what's cool or what's hip anymore. The times are getting away from them. And I feel like I've certainly felt that. I know you have because you've explained that. It doesn't matter what age. Everybody's going to feel that at some point. You could be 20 and feel like you're a burnout and you're washed up and you haven't achieved the things you want to. Or you could be 60 and be like, okay, now I feel like a burnout. Or you could feel the same way at 20 and 60 and just try to forget your uh, the fact that you did nothing with your life. (laughs) You're just burning out for 40 years straight. Yeah. That's a long burn. That's more like a slow burn. Yeah, you're right, actually. Shout out to Casey Musgraves. Love you, Casey. Thanks for listening. (laughs) 
You know who she is, right? Can't wait to have you on. Yeah, she's a, well, she was a country singer and now everybody loves her. It was one of those weird things where it's like, I think I knew her country songs and then people that don't like country are like, I love Casey Musgraves. I'm like, oh, okay. Yeah, she's very pop now. Yeah, she's great. Before we move on, can I say one quick thing? Yeah. You ever have a line that you know it's not the right line, but you just sing it in your head or sing it out loud and you never really go and look it up? Yeah, I think we talked about this on one of the past episodes, maybe a couple of them, but yeah, of course. And there are a couple on this album that uh, that I wanted to bring up. Well, Billy Joe's style of singing is very... Like, it's rhythmic and sometimes he doesn't really enunciate, I guess. Sure, yeah. The one line, I'll live inside this mental cave through my emotions in the grave. I always heard it as, I'll live inside this pencil case. <laughs> so. Okay. That's just because you were 12 years old and listening to this and you had pencil cases on the mind. <laughs> I just thought that was funny. <laughs> like, yeah, Billy, I, w- I know what it's like living inside this little pencil case. <laughs> yeah, you're exactly right, dude. Yeah, you were just hearing what you wanted to hear. But that's funny because there are some lines where I also heard something that I would have thought at that time. Like something that a young kid would probably hear. Right. We'll get to it. Awesome. Track number two, Having a Blast. What a fun one, Mike. Or is it? This might have been one of the ones that maybe you didn't catch on to, but your parents might have not wanted you to listen to. I think this was one we were allowed to listen to. Oh, man. Your parents suck. Yeah. Bad parenting. (laughs) Mom and dad. Come on. Well, the title is clearly facetious because it's having a blast, which implies that it's a real fun, upbeat, positive thing. But the entire song is extremely negative it's about a horrible time it's really about feeling overwhelmed by all the horrible things in life yeah the having a blast portion of it is the opening lines are i'm taking all you down with me explosive duct tape to my spine nothing's (laughs) gonna change my mind yeah so well hey as far as having a blast he is blowing stuff up i know maybe that's what he meant it's kind of messed up there's nothing left for you to say soon you'll be dead anyway It is dark. It's one of the darker songs on the album by far. I don't want to get into too dark of a subject here, but this song always kind of reminded me of the Columbine shooting. Green Day's lucky that the same people that were coming after Marilyn Manson weren't looking for their lyrics because this is pretty dark. 
do you think the theme of this song is like school shooting, violence in schools, things like that? I think it might have not really been trying to at the time. But could be construed that way is what you're saying. Right. Like I'm saying when Columbine happened, people could reach and say, well, this song from 1994 was a huge influence in their lives and like mentally charged them into committing these crimes. This is never a fun deep dive, but when you go on those Wikipedia deep dives where you're just clicking through links, I was actually curious to see how many prominent school shootings there were before Columbine. And there was there was a ton, like and going back to the 1800s, but up until that point, I think Columbine was the most deadly school shooting in America. And it was a huge part of our childhood, so I guess it makes sense that I would relate this song to that. Yeah, you went a lot darker and a lot more <laughs> real than I than I ever did. To me, this was more about <laughs> when you build up to like big moments that fall flat. Like you're building up to a big birthday party or a big event in your life and it never hits those expectations and you're like, oh, that actually kind of sucked. Like because it didn't reach those expectations, it was way worse. Well, I guess when you put it that way, that probably was more of the theme they were going for. I hope so. I mean, who knows? But I could see why you think it goes that way. I mean, the lyrics are extremely violent. And if you're looking at it literally, you could probably spin it in that direction. But I think if you're looking at it more figuratively, it's like you're just kind of bogged down by everyday life. And even the things that are supposed to be big and special in your life, never really are. There's a line in the song that says, do you ever build up all the small things in your head to make one big problem that adds up to nothing? So it's like you're being bombarded by multiple little things. Billy Joe does have an interesting way of expressing what's going on in his mental state. And I think it's very relatable. It was at the time when I first listened to this and still to this day, like, I do that all the time. I always make problems bigger than they are. Yeah. Or I think that I screw something up or somebody's mad at me. Like, do you ever get, like, the, oh, that person must be mad at me just because, like, you haven't talked in a while or, or I don't know, like, an interaction didn't go the way that you had planned? Yeah, of course. It's a very human thing. You and I think. You blow it up into something it's not. And a lot of this album is centered around his own anxieties and his own panic driven assumptions. And you see it in a lot of the songs. Track number three. I can't believe they wrote this one about you, Mike. Chump. Hey. After listening through a couple times and reading the lyrics, I think this one is about hating someone who you've never really met. What gave that away? The line, I don't know you, but I think I hate you? I think that might have been the one, yeah. <laughs> that one kind of stood out to me. And this is a theme that we definitely have seen before, haven't we? We have. 
it was Dysentery Gary, right? Dysentery Gary, back at it. Yeah, it definitely was. Our good old buddy Gary. Yep. You hate your ex, but you also hate their new boo. Yeah, for no reason. Well, I guess there is sort of a reason, but not really. For one very specific reason. Right. They got what you want. Yeah. And it also came up in Sum 41, too. There were a couple songs about being jealous of people because it seems like they're doing better than you. They're getting ahead of you. This is all that. It's all, you don't like somebody. You've never met them. You don't really know why you don't like them, but you don't like them. Right. There's not really a good reason for not liking them. Right. You're on the right track with the theme of this one because there's also the line, magic man, egocentric, plastic man, yet you still got one over on me. So it's like you think this new guy is fake. He's plastic. He's probably a suit. But he still one-upped you, man. He still got the girl. Your girl. We hate those suits. We really do. Those yuppies. They're always trying to hold us down, you know? They are. This song, I believe, was about Billy Joe Armstrong, who had a girlfriend. They broke up. She moved away. Had another boyfriend. And, of course, he was hating on this guy who she was now with. I bet you there's a reason why we see this theme is because... The girl probably is dating, like, Billy Joe Armstrong. 1994 probably has some blue hair, piercings. Her next boyfriend was probably some straight-laced guy. Some suit. Yeah, and that's literally the worst thing in the world to a punk from uh, Oakland. It's like, how could she possibly leave me for him? Yeah, but I couldn't really figure out if Billy Joe Armstrong in the title of the song, if he was calling the new guy the chump or himself a chump. I think a lot of it is wondering, like, think about you date somebody, they're with somebody new. You're comparing yourself to that person. Right. Like, am I the better person or is this new guy a humongous improvement for me? Like, that's a real question that people ask themselves. Is she better off? I guess it depends on if you're still in love with this girl, then I guess the singer in this case would be the chump. If it's somebody that you're kind of like over, you're almost a blessing in disguise, they're gone, then you might be thinking, you frickin' chump, you have no idea what you're in for. Yeah. Yeah. It could go either way. I'm not totally sure, but it is that situation. It's the situation they're talking about in this song. Chump is a great word. An underutilized word. It's underutilized, and are we still allowed to say it? Why wouldn't we be? Well, I don't know. There's some words that we used to say that maybe we shouldn't say anymore. Oh, yeah. That's a good point. (sighs) There's plenty of words that I can think of that chump could replace and essentially mean the same thing. Yeah, that's true. Um, I think chump is still good. I don't know. I'm not positive. I like knucklehead. Knucklehead's a good one, too. I like knucklehead. I like bozo. Bozo. Oh, bozo's an all-timer. Isn't that a good one? Yeah. I want to bring that one back. Track number four. Here comes... A hard off limit song for the young Clark boys, Longview.
All right. So track number five is Welcome to Paradise. <laughs> Should we just skip all the ones that are off limits? We didn't want to listen to Longview. <laughs> I've never heard it, so I don't know. <laughs> I, can't, I can't comment on it. My mom's listening. Keenan, as a father, I think your parents had every right to ask you and your brother Shane to skip over this track at the ripe ages of, what, seven and nine? I guess. I mean, what's it about? I don't know. Well, Keenan, essentially, it's about being bored and masturbating. Whoa. Yep. You're just going to go out and say it? I think, I mean, they say it in the song. And that's a very fair point. I was going to say it's about jerking your gherkin. <laughs> <laughs> you know, the, the official term. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> was this the debut single? I know I said we weren't going to go into the singles because there's so many of them. But it was. It was the debut single. So, <laughs> so this one was like the popular song that got all the airtime? I guess initially. I'm shocked by that. It was released February 1st. So I guess the single was released along with the album. But then Basket Case wasn't released until August. So Hmm. this had a couple months as the premiere single off this album. We talked about this with What's My Age Again. But there's no way radio stations in 1994 played a song where one of the lines is, Masturbation's lost its fun and you're effing lonely. Yeah, they had to have censor some things, change some words. When constipations, you've lost the runs, and you're freaking, I don't know. <laughs> you know, keep going, you're doing great. <laughs> Lonely. Doctor said my mom should have had proportion. <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah, I mean, it's pretty clear what it's about. Let me just read through a couple of these lyrics here. The chorus, bite my lip and close my eyes, take me away to paradise. I'm so damn bored, I'm going blind. Isn't that one of the classic things like, if you do that too much, you're going to go blind? That's what they all say, right? Yeah, I think that's the uh, the old warning that a young person might receive. That's what the suits will tell you. Yeah, I don't think there's any scientific evidence to back that up. It is funny because, again, I, I don't want to make this the Dysentery Gary podcast. But we talked about how in that song, it's rare that you sing along to a song where you have to sing the word diarrhea. It's very rare where you sing a a song about masturbation. Right. And there are words that you kind of heard when you listen to these songs that like maybe when you were younger, you didn't really know, but you just kind of knew they weren't things that you were supposed to know yet. Does that make sense? Sure. Here's an example for you. I remember when we were younger, I was probably eight or nine, and my younger sister was six or seven, and we were watching the classic movie, The Parent Trap, starring Lindsay Lohan. Ah, that's a great flick. It is a great flick. Starring both Lindsay Lohan. (laughs) Yeah, both her and her twin sister. Yeah. But there's a line when they're talking to their father's girlfriend, Meredith Blake, and they say, life's not all about sex, though, is it, Mare? And we were all watching it as a family, and I just knew, like, okay, it's just one word. Nobody, like, just on to the next thing. Nobody freak out. And still, honestly, to this day, like, nobody likes watching uncomfortable movies with their parents. It's just a weird thing to do. But my <laughs> sister is like, what's sex? 
Oh, Caitlin, come on. She's like six years old. So it's like they were like, um, yeah, it's just when you like somebody just because they're attractive. Hmm. Good save. And that was good enough for me. I thought that was pretty good on the fly. Great save, Moynihan's. So I'm sure your parents' main reason was just like, we're not going to freaking explain this to Keenan when he's seven years old. Just <laughs> easier to skip over it, man. <laughs> hey, I'm, I'm cool with it, too. <laughs> that brings up the point. Did you ever get the birds and the bees talk from your parents? I did, but... Really? It was a very light discussion. Birds and bees light? Yeah. We had the walking by faith religious class. Do you remember that? Oh, yeah. In grade school? That was like our sex ed for Catholics, which was basically just like, don't have sex. Yeah, they didn't cover a lot of the essentials, if I remember correctly. But I think it encouraged our parents to like say, here's what we're talking about in in the class if you want to talk. So my mom was like, do you want to talk to your dad or me? I'm like, honestly, neither of you, but... (laughs) I guess since we're already talking, go ahead. <laughs> and then she yeah. just kind of gave me the, here's what it is. Got any questions? Let us know. And I never mm-hmm. had another question as long <laughs> as I lived. No, you save those questions for uh, for Google, I think. Google.com. Yeah. Back in the day, I used to ask Jeeves. <laughs> they probably knew all my questions because they probably didn't know anything about uh, clearing a search history. <laughs> That's true. Good point. Did you get the talk, or were they just like, look, Keenan, as long as you never listen to this Green Day song, we're fine? Yeah, I'm going to be honest. I think this song may have been the talk. This may have been me discovering what it was all about. Yeah. I don't think my parents ever sat me down and discussed it with me. It's an incredibly uncomfortable thing to talk about. Yeah, no doubt about that. I don't even want to talk to you about it. I really want to talk to you about it. That does take guts to put this song on your album. Yeah. I mean, they were pushing the envelope in most of these songs when you really think about it. It's weird. There are certain things in life where it's like everybody knows about it, but you never talk about it. The other thing about this song that's worth mentioning is it does have that iconic sounding intro where it's just the drums and the bass and it has that bass line that you recognize immediately. I read that Mike Dirnt wrote that bass line while under the influence of LSD. So he was tripping when this bass line came to him, essentially. It's kind of funny. That's kind of cool. Yeah. It just spoke to him, I guess. Track number five, Welcome to Paradise.
I like this one. This is a good song. It actually has a pretty cool feeling story to it. It almost reminded me of Brand New, where you could follow a song from beginning to end, and there's an evolution, and there's kind of a plot to it. This song had that. Yeah, it's a story of wanting to leave home, right? Wanting to ditch your parents or ditch your mom and get out there on your own. Yeah, I think it's definitely about growing up, moving out, experiencing what the real world is like. Keenan, we said having a blast is facetious. I think we could safely assume that Welcome to Paradise is a sarcastic title as well, wouldn't you say? I think parts of it for sure. Parts of the song, it's about moving out to your first apartment or your first dorm, and it's terrible, and there's so many issues with it. But I think later in the song, he's actually saying it sincerely. Once you get a handle of what living on your own is actually like, it actually can be pretty great. And so I think part of it is facetious, part of it is not. I think you're right. The paradise is that he has his freedom. You know, whether you think he's living in a slum, he thinks it's the greatest thing in the world just because he can do what he wants and he has free will. Right, exactly. So that's the paradise he's discussing. It does remind me of when you first move out of the house. And for both of us, that was when we moved into college dorms. And for us, it was like, I lived in this tiny little single, was nothing special, cinder block walls, a crappy old mattress that dozens of people have slept in before me. But for me, it was like, oh my God, this is, this is paradise. I'm living out of the house. I'm on my own. I'm experiencing this, this whole new freedom in college. This is my paradise. But really, when you look back at it, you're like, oh, that's such a horrible living space. My, it sounds very similar to yours, other than I had a roommate. Shout out, Steve. Yo, what up, Steve? I guess they couldn't find anybody that wanted to live with you. <laughs> <laughs> That's right. But yeah, the cinder block walls, buildings that were just built in the 1940s, 1950s that were received little to no upgrades, but except now they actually have, and they're quite nice. But at the time, there was no air conditioning, so... I always remember the first month of school was miserable because it was so hot and you had the box fans and kind of slept on top of your sheets. And then by the end of school in May, you had to pull out the box fan again because there was just no AC whatsoever. Like you said, it's like you put that all aside. Yeah, I might be uncomfortable. I might be sweaty at night. I might be eating dining hall food that makes me feel sick to my stomach. But I don't have to come back and explain to my parents why I was out past midnight. I don't have to call them to say hello every once in a while. Oh, how are you doing? How are your classes? You know, just make some stuff up. Like, of course, I'm going to my 8 a.m.s. <laughs> of course, I'm talking to girls. You are doing both those things. I know it. But it is cool. It is a newfound freedom that we likely will never feel again. Dark. Um, <laughs> and you also think about, like, your apartments after college, also not great. But eventually you get to a place where you're actually living comfortably in a nice place. You have a home. And you feel that in the song. Earlier in the song, the lines are, Dear mother, can you hear me whining? It's been three whole weeks since I left your home. And then the final verse is, Dear mother, can you hear me laughing? It's been six whole months since I left your home. So it's like, there is an evolution like, it starts out bad, it becomes better over time, but the whole time you're still experiencing freedom, so it's still like, you're still fine with it. Right. 
here's my weekly comparison to other songs. The intro of this song, to me, sounds a lot like the intro of Good Charlotte's Festival song. I would have to agree. The chord progression, the way the drums come in, extremely similar to me. And I know that festival song came way later, so. Right. I wouldn't doubt that this played an influence on Good Charlotte, whether they realized it or not. Yeah, it had to have. Track number six. Pulling Teeth, a song about the dentist, right, Mike? I think so, Keenan. When was the last time you were at the dentist? I haven't been in so long, and then... Like, how long are we talking? Fall of... Oh, boy. 2018. Almost two years. Dude, you need to go to the dentist. Well, I was going to, and then frickin' COVID. I think they're open again now, but I still feel weird going. Smile, let me see. Oh, yikes. Yeah, that doesn't look great. I've never had a cavity. I just need to, uh, you know, floss more. Do you floss? No. You don't floss? No. Oh, you're in trouble. Do you? Yeah, I do. Every day? Every other day. You honestly floss every other day? Yeah, I started like the beginning of this year. Before that, never. Was that your New Year's resolution? No. But I just kind of got into a groove. And... I feel like that's a New Year's resolution you make when you're in a nursing home. <laughs> like that's Wait, the lamest, what? least amount of pressure put on yourself ever. It's like my New Year's resolution this year is to floss, but only every other day. <laughs> I just said it's not my New Year's resolution, so. I'm saying if it was, it'd be super lame of you. Yeah, well, it's not, so. But no, I would love to go to the dentist because I'm not even a guy that is afraid of the dentist. I kind of like the dentist, actually. I do, too. You feel great afterwards. Yeah. I don't mind it. This song's not about the dentist, though, Keenan. <laughs> no. No, it's not. It's a really sad song. It has a really nice, melodic, musical aspect of it, but the lyrics are kind of about this deranged relationship where I'm assuming it's a girl just because Billy Joe is a singer and he mentions her like, it sounds like he's essentially being tortured and kept against his will in this girl's house. He's stuck in this terrible relationship. She's leaving him bruised and bloody. It almost makes you feel like it's some sort of abusive relationship which is very dark, like you said. Right. And then getting yourself to feel any sort of love for this person is essentially like pulling teeth. Like you pretend it as long as you can, but 
you really can't do that forever. It kind of reminds me of a couple songs we've discussed in the past where it's obviously a doomed relationship. There's so many negative aspects of it, but the final lines of the song are, for now, I'll lie around. Hell, that's all I can really do. She takes good care of me. Just keep saying my love is true. So it's like, as long as I keep going along with this, things will be okay. Yeah, you're just delaying and delaying and delaying, but really, you're just trapping yourself. Right. In this case, it seems literally. Yeah, well, the one of the last lines is, looking out my window for someone that's passing by, no one knows I'm locked in here, all I do is cry. Jeez. I think this has to be hypothetical. I feel like if this ever actually happened for real, we would have heard so many stories about... Oh, like if Billy Joe Armstrong was actually trapped in a house? And, yeah. Yeah, we probably would have read about it somewhere. Probably would have done more than just write this catchy song about it. <laughs> yeah, I guess. Track number seven, Basket Case. Do you have the time to listen to me whine About nothing and everything all at once I am one of those melodramatic fools Neurotic to the bone, no doubt about it Sometimes I give myself the creeps Sometimes my mind plays tricks on me It all keeps adding up I think I'm cracking up Am I just paranoid? Am I just up? This was, as we mentioned earlier, the second single off this album. I think I would still consider this the biggest track that came off of this album. I think it's still yeah. the most popular and I think a fan favorite still to this day. It's just such a great tune. It is. It's my favorite song on the album. It's one of my favorite Green Day songs of all time. I think it's a safe assumption to say that's many people would probably agree with you. I know. I kind of hate that every week I pick the really popular songs as my favorite songs, but it's just kind of unavoidable for me. Not everybody can be an indie pop punker like myself. There's a definite reason why this song has hung around for so long. It's catchy, it's relatable. Did your parents let you listen to this one? Yeah. This one we were definitely allowed to listen to. So they didn't care if you just knew what a whore was? <laughs> yeah, whore was cool. This song kind of confused me in terms of the gender roles. Go on. I don't want to be provocative by saying this, but I think for 1994, this is a pretty progressive song because Billy Joe sings about going to a shrink to analyze his dreams and the psychiatrist is a woman. And then he says he goes to a whore, and the whore says his life's a bore, and the whore's a man. Yeah. So, kind of reverse traditional gender roles. Yeah, for sure. You wouldn't refer to a sex worker, you wouldn't assume a sex worker is usually a man, but that's definitely not true. Yeah, I Bring it me 
I remember from a young age thinking, did he just make a mistake when he was writing the song? <laughs> but no, he didn't. It was just, that was intentional. And I think that's kind of cool. Yeah, that was really cool. And I think we'll come to see in later songs that his sexuality is a question. And that line alludes to that. Definitely. The overall song, I think, is about his own battles with anxiety, feelings of going crazy, panic attacks, things like that. And he wrote this when he was still grappling with those confusing feelings. And he was later diagnosed with panic disorder. Okay. I don't know if I realized that. Yeah. I mean, before you know what is actually ailing you, you just have these bizarre feelings and these bizarre emotions. Yeah. And so a lot of it is centered around feeling overwhelmed by stress, anxiety. The line that always stuck out to me that I think is very relatable for, I think I would consider myself to have mild anxiety. I don't know if I'm self-diagnosing or what, but when he says, do you have the time to listen to me whine about nothing and everything all at once? And we kind of mentioned it earlier where you're kind of building up your own issues in your head and you're turning nothing into everything. So sometimes you don't even know where the issues fall on the spectrum. Right. You know, this could be a huge thing or not the big of a deal. And sometimes it's hard for you to discern that whether you're neurotic or anxious or depressed or just confused in general. It makes me think like kids who listen to pop punk albums and albums like this, do you think they all had similar anxiety issues? Do you think they were more inclined to listen to these albums because they were anxious or depressed or had some sort of undiagnosed panic disorder? I would say possibly yes. I don't know to what extreme, but I would say there's probably definitely a reason why somebody chose to listen to Green Day or Blink-182 as opposed to Eminem or Nelly, you know? Yeah, like they were drawn to these types of themes. And it might not have been intentional the first time they listened to it, but then once you kind of understood the themes and thought, okay, like this is something I can relate to, then you kind of branched out and searched for more albums in that vein. Yeah. To a certain extent, we're still doing it today. It might not be in the exact same genre, but I know most of the bands I listen to today are more on the emo or introspective side, I guess you could say. So you mentioned earlier how there are some lines where you hear one thing back then and then you actually read the lyrics today and you're like, oh, that's what they actually say. There are lines in the song. Sometimes I give myself the creeps. Sometimes my mind plays tricks on me. When I was a little kid, I used to always think that second line was, sometimes my mom plays tricks on me. (laughs) And I just always thought, oh, dude, why is his mom so horrible? Like, why is she such a jerk to him and i guess in my 10 year old mind seven year old mind that just made sense (laughs) sometimes my mom makes me skip track three (laughs) (laughs) yeah the heck she did did your mom play tricks on you she must have that's what i was hearing i think my mom's tricks were just like well santa i mean santa's the biggest mom trick in the book right (laughs) oh sorry Sorry, listeners. There are young listeners out there. (laughs) (laughs) Whoops. Yeah, that's going to be a weird one. Going back to the birds and the bees, were you ever told straight up Santa's not real? Or did you just kind of come to find out that 
Oh, no. There was one Christmas where I basically cornered an older cousin of mine, and I was like, all right, dude, tell me straight up what's going on here. And he spilled the beans. Man. How much older? Like, what age were you? I was pretty young. It was honestly probably around this time. It was like dude, maybe seven or eight. What about you? It was probably right around when I first listened to American Idiot. Really? I'm just, I'm just kidding. <laughs> okay. I'm like, geez. Like this exact same time period as when we listened to this album. Yeah. No, I, I think I was probably a little bit older, maybe nine or ten. Okay. But nobody ever told me. I never asked anybody. You just decided one day that he couldn't be real? No, I accidentally found a present uh, that was then from Santa. Talk about bad parenting. Come on. Yeah, it was, I was snooping. It was like kind of hidden in like a hamper or like behind some clothes or something like that. <clears throat> so. I'll tell you one thing though. When you know that Santa isn't real and you're a little bit younger and people in your class or your siblings don't know yet, it's a bit of a burden. You feel like you're a part of the secret at that point. Yeah, I'm sure. So you're saying you knew before Shane and Chelsea? I think I found out that night. Or you, they might have known, but you didn't want to take the risk and tell them? Yeah. It was such a confusing time. Yeah. You don't know who knows what. Right. And then there are the kids when it's like, you're not sure, but you don't want to be the one to be like, hey, so all that Santa bullshit, <laughs> crazy, right? As you're like smoking a cigarette. It's like, hey, how about that <laughs> Santa, like, huh? You know, when you're blowing smoke in your little cousin's face at Christmas time. <laughs> it's like they're 12, but they're still like, oh, well, we better go to sleep because Santa's on the way. And you're like, oh, no. Oh, boy, yeah. I'm not saying that happened personally, but I just feel like there's characters in movies like the one cousin in Home Alone that like always pees the bed. He definitely thought Santa was real till he was like 17. Yeah. Wait, wait, can I, all right. Real quick. Hopefully Steve doesn't get mad at me about this, but can I tell the story about how my buddy Steve found out Santa wasn't real? Yeah. So, I might be messing up some details on this because I found this out a long time ago, but he said his parents just straight up told him one year. Really? Yeah. Like they were just done with it? Yeah. They, they told him. They told him and his brother. So I guess his brother's Mike is like two years older. So I guess Steve was yeah. probably pretty young if Mike still was on teetering on the belief. They told him and then just <laughs> made them wrap their own presents. No, really? Yeah. What? Are you serious? I don't know if that's the part that I'm making up myself. It was either <laughs> they then had to wrap their own presents or they just kind of like gave them their presents like oh and by the way santa's not real oh my god worst christmas ever that does really make you realize how much your parents did for you yeah like one day it's gonna click it hasn't yet like i'm close to realizing that yeah but the same thought process i had when i'm like you mean they gave me all those presents and they spent all that money and it wasn't just because I was good and it came yeah. from nowhere. Yeah. Like there's going to come a day when I'm like, oh my gosh, they've done so much for me and I never did anything in return. Yeah. Well, you would make your crappy little gift that you'd color <laughs> on something. Right? <laughs> from Mike. There's a great, there's a great um, Eddie Murphy joke from back in the day. And it's about what you get your dad for Christmas. Uh -huh. And he's like, 
would always get my dad a tie, and he would open the card, and every last kid in the house would their name would be on that card. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, dude. I feel like dads get shafted most holidays. They definitely do. The moms, there's always some expectation of like a nice, thoughtful gift, of like maybe yeah. a piece of jewelry or something nice. Yeah. But also, it's like, you know, I don't, I don't care now. I just had my birthday and I got two Ninja Turtle Hawaiian shirts because that's all I wanted. That's pretty good, though. I'm saying I'm running out. I'm running out of ideas, man. Wait, didn't you buy one of those for yourself? I did, but then my mom asked me if I wanted another one, and I said, yes, I did. <laughs> Wait, so did you wrap the original one? No. Okay, so they both weren't presents. I'm just saying. Oh, okay, I see. Yeah. But you were allowed to buy that for yourself. Yeah, and Abby asked me what I wanted. I'm like, don't worry about it. I got covered. Oh, man. Marriage is complicated. There's a lot I don't get. For as much as we think it's stupid, I got a handmade Valentine's Day card from Jack, and it was like the best thing. Yeah, that's great. It was really just Abby. Dude. But How do you know, though? I have a feeling it was ha- it was her handwriting, much like our parents wrote cards for Santa. Were there some backwards letters there, though? Yeah. That's how you know it's the kid. He's an idiot. He can't spell. He can't spell at all. But if it's backwards, it could be him. It might be. Track number eight, She. This is also one of the singles, right? It was. It was the last single. This one's cool. It has sort of a, another bass drum only open. does have a nice opening to it it's another slower song i think pulling teeth in this one are probably the slower songs on the album Mm -hmm. this one is less about a girl and entrapment and more about just a girl that's sad kind of misunderstood trying to break free of a mold and forge her own path in the world but maybe not having the easiest of times with it there's a lot of juxtaposition in the opening verse that I always really appreciated. The first line is, she screams in silence. So, <laughs> what? <laughs> How does one scream in silence? Really makes you think. It's like, maybe her introvertedness is her way of expressing her sadness, or it's a cry for help. And then a, a sullen riot penetrating through her mind. And I was thinking... Sullen Riot would be an awesome name for another pop punk band, but then I realized that it's essentially just Quiet Riot, and they actually is already a name of a of a much bigger band. Yeah, not pop punk. Anyway, I think those lines are pretty cool. Yeah, this song does capture the feeling of feeling like you're useless, insignificant in sort of this big world, right? Mm-hmm. And then also... Part of it is realizing that you're conforming to social norms and other people's expectations. Like, she realizes that 
everything that she built herself up to be is just her doing it in the image of other people. Like we cared way too much about what people think. And I think that's what Armstrong was saying. For sure. He's taking the role in this song of the person that's willing to listen and try to help her and show her, hey, like there are other people like you. He's saying, scream at me until my ears bleed. I'm taking heed just for you, which he has a very interesting way with some of the lines he uses, like taking heed instead of saying I'm here to listen or I'm listening to you is a pretty cool way to express that. But yeah. And this was actually written by Armstrong after a girlfriend of his showed him a feminist poem that she had written and it was called she. And so I think this was kind of his response to that. Like, okay, I I hear what you're saying. Right. That's actually awesome. I never realized there was more to it than that. Yeah, it's pretty cool. This is Billy Joe showing her that he is an ally. When I read that it was about, you know, this ex-girlfriend's poem, I thought, oh, is that like a hostile thing? Is this like a rebuttal or a parody of it? But no, I think it's him understanding her, understanding where she's coming from. Track number nine, Sassafras Roots. Kind of like that title. So I did a pretty deep dive on this one, Mike. Can you humor me for a second here? I would gladly, because I will say up front, this is probably my least favorite song on the album. Oh boy. It's one I usually skip, not because my parents make me, but just because I, I don't like it that much. But go ahead. What's up? So Sassafras, do you know what that is? No. The only thing it makes me think of is a sarsaparilla. It's like a soda fountain, right? Yeah, I think they're related. So sassafras is a plant and it's the main ingredient or was the main ingredient in traditional root beer. It's also the ingredient in teas and ground leaves were used as a distinctive additive in Louisiana Creole cuisine, often used by Native American tribes as some sort of medicine. Uh, they thought it had some medicinal qualities. And so it was this really popular plant for a long time. And then Eventually, in 1960, it was banned by the FDA because there were numerous health concerns about some carcinogens in certain ways that it's prepared, hmm. and so no longer in use, which I honestly didn't know. I knew that it was an ingredient in root beer, and I just assumed that it is still an ingredient, but yeah, found out that that is not the case. Yeah, I know the term sarsaparilla as like what they used to call root beer. I also think a sassafras is what you call your uh, call a little girl or a little boy when he's acting out. Is that true? He's being sassy. I, I always say it. Maybe it's because of this song. Oh, sassy. Oh. Like, all right, sassafras. I mean, is that something that you've heard or is that just something that you're... It's something everybody's, everybody says. <laughs> yeah, I've totally said that. Many people are saying it. Hey, what's up, you little sassafras? <laughs> sure. Uh, yeah, I don't see why not. It has a nice ring to it. If Abby's texting me Jack's acting up or Jack's being bad, I'll just text uh, that sassafras. So it's probably just me. Yeah, it might just be you. That's kind of a cool thing. So I had to look it up because you don't see sassafras that often. 
And then you listen to the song and the lyrics are basically, I'm wasting my time, you're wasting your time. He essentially says wasting your time every other line. And I counted it. And he uses that 19 times throughout the song. And Hmm. remember that these are like two and a half minute songs. Right. So it's kind of that over and over again. It's very repetitive. Is that why you hated the song? I think it probably is. Because a lot of the other songs, there's lyrics that stick out or that I can relate to. Yeah. But this one is literally just, I'm wasting your time. I'm a lot like you. Will you waste my time too? And it's like, it's not that it's like not a, it's a catchy song. It's just, there's too many other great songs on this album with, in my opinion, lyrical content that's more worth listening to. I agree with you. It is repetitive. But when I started reading the lyrics, I actually got a little more out of it. So the first half of the song is about him wanting to waste his time with this other person who I assume is a girl he likes. And he's like, oh, you're wasting your time. I could waste my time with you. Let's waste our time together. Mm -hmm. Spend some time together. And then the second verse later in the song, he's talking about how wasting your time together is actually a bad thing. He's like, warding off regrets, wasting your time. Smoking cigarettes, wasting your time. I'm just a parasite, wasting your time. It almost kind of follows a cycle of a relationship where it's like, you're in the honeymoon phase, you get along really well, you enjoy spending time together. Then later on, you start getting each other's nerves. It's not as great as he thought it was. And then hear me out here. Sure. Then I thought back to the history of Sassafras and I was like, oh, this is something that was super popular, super tasty, was used in everything. And then all of a sudden, they realize it's bad for you. It's pulled out of everything. It's never used anymore. Now it's this horrible thing. Could that have been the connection? I don't know. Am I reading too much into it? Yeah, dude. You just did you just did the Don Draper of the Sassafras business. It's like <laughs> we're expected to believe that Sassafras is now bad for us when it brought us so much joy for so many years. So is there anything so bad about that? It's my Don so Draper. So you're saying I may have spun it a little too much. You would have been in that pitch meeting, man. <laughs> All right, so we're removing Sassafras, but not because it's bad. It's never been bad. We're just making the product better. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) I'm just trying my best, you know? Dude, I appreciate you doing this legwork because it gives me a little bit of new meaning for this song. So, Well, it is funny because I would have agreed with you. I also thought this song was like kind of a throwaway song, like never anything special, was kind of repetitive. Like, why would he just write that over and over again? But once I dug down a little bit, maybe I'm pulling at straws here, but I think there could be more to it. I would have said that you were just wasting your time, (laughs) (laughs) but I'm glad you did it. (laughs) Wow. A zinger out of nowhere. Yeah. Classic. Track number 10, When I Come Around.
I would say one of the more popular, well-known songs from the album. I think so, too. I think after Basket Case, this is the one that has had the most staying power. It's the song I still hear on the radio today. It's also my favorite song. So when you were saying, you know, you feel bad, Basket Case is probably one of the most popular songs on the album and it's your favorite. I'm right there with you because I know this is a more popular song. It was another single. But to me, it's just the song that I just still really love it. I love the the music. I love the lyrics. I think it's just such a perfect song altogether. It is really good. The drums in this song really stand out to me from the intro all the way through. It's definitely one that I have to break out the air drums for. And as far as the themes and the meaning of the song, this song is also inspired by a woman, like several other songs on the album. But it was inspired by Billy Joe Armstrong's wife, who was his girlfriend at the time. And they had just gotten into this blow up fight and he needed some space and needed to clear his head. So he, you know, went for a walk and just took some time by himself. And when you listen to the song and when you read the lyrics, you totally get that vibe. You need time away from somebody. You need to just be with yourself, your own thoughts, your own emotions, and you need to clear your head. And that's what the music video was too, wasn't it? It was the guys in the band kind of walking down the streets alone, feeling lonely. Yeah, it was them just walking through the streets. It's a very relaxing video to watch, actually, if that makes sense. Yeah, it is. As I mentioned earlier, this this song is the one that relates back to the line and having a blast. Do you ever build up all the small things in your head to make one problem that adds up to nothing? And it's my favorite song on the album. This is actually my favorite lines of the album. So, Whoa! Yeah. Tattoo worthy? Yep, these are the tattoo worthy lines. So Wowie. And these are actually ones that I've been fond of for a very long time. So I honestly don't remember because I banged out so many uh body parts. Body parts all at once last episode, but I think this one might go right on a forearm. I think we're at both ankles down. I know the ankles and I have a tramp stamp of somewhere ahead of the back of the line. <laughs> yeah, that's right. Uh I think forearms are fair game. All right, I'm going to say right forearm. Okay, that's big. Yeah, a line that's, I don't know if I've just heard it a gazillion times, but I feel like everybody should love this line. But it's, so go do what you like, make sure you do it wise. You may find out that your self-doubt means nothing was ever there. You can't go forcing something if it's just not right. It's big, it's a long one. It's a long one, but... It's a big tattoo. The last one, you can't go forcing something if it's just not right. I think that's the... Boom. But I think that line as a whole is just, you could attribute that quote to somebody that's not Green Day or Billy Joe Armstrong, and people would say like, oh, that's like, those are very wise words. Wow, that's a Confucius, I believe. Yeah, Confucius. He did always say, go do what you like. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. I've heard that a couple times from Confucius. It does remind me of that classic proverb, absence makes the heart grow fonder. Or also like time heals all wounds. You know those? Mm -hmm. Because you're with this person who's very special to you, but sometimes you don't see eye to eye. And all you need is a little bit of space and makes you realize how much you actually miss them or how much they mean to you. So I listen to this song and I watch that music video and I always think about those two things. Yeah, I think you're right. And I believe that I found true love and the lines, no time to search the world around because you know where I'll be found when I come around. It's saying 
yeah, there are plenty of fish in the sea, but if you think you've found that right person and you separate from them for a while or you take a break and you realize, you know, you're out there looking for somebody else when you realize this is all wrong. I kind of always known this. I just needed to put myself out there and learn that my inclinations were correct. Yeah. This song, I actually have a memory about you. I don't even know if you would remember this or not, but it was grade school. We must have been on the bus or something. It came on the radio and we both were jamming out like, this song's awesome. But I remember you saying, Billy Joe Armstrong is the greatest songwriter of our generation. Did I really? Yeah. Something like that. Hey, not wrong. I remember thinking, what a loser. (laughs) (laughs) But here we are. I'm talking about how much I like this song and these lines. So Yeah, wow. Joke's on me. What year was this? Oh, 2004, 2005. It was 7th or 8th grade probably. We We probably loved American Idiot and... We were like, oh, Green Day is awesome. And I'm not going to lie. I still think Green Day has some great lyrics and some great songs. So, yeah, jokes on me. I thought, what a weird thing to say about Billy Joe Armstrong. Yeah. But I'm getting this tattooed on my arm, dude. You should have listened. Talk about Confucius, young Keenan Clark. I know. Ahead of my time. People always said that. <laughs> Track 11, Coming Clean. This one's pretty cool, Mike. This one's actually about Billy Joe Armstrong acknowledging and realizing that he's bisexual. And so it's his quote-unquote coming out song. He's coming clean. He's coming out. Gotcha. Okay, so this is what you were alluding to in Basket Case. That's right. Exactly right. It makes sense when I read it back now. I guess I didn't realize at the time when I first listened to it that it was about his bisexuality. And I know in recent years or in the years since I've read interviews where he's expressed that you know he's married to his wife but he's always considered himself a bisexual even though I don't think he's ever been in a serious relationship with a man but right that must have been a really hard thing for him to do especially at that time yeah and to put it publicly out there in your album that's huge it's a lot different than just telling it to a couple close family members or friends I mean this is as public as it gets mm-hmm So yeah, I think it was a pretty big step. And I often wonder, there are other lead singers and other members of bands, famous pop punk bands who have also come out as as gay or bisexual. And I wonder if they felt at least slightly inspired by Billy Joe Armstrong. A couple that come to mind are Buddy Nielsen of Senses Fail. Also, Brendan Urie, the lead singer of Panic! at the Disco, he came out as pansexual a few years ago. So I wonder if like Billy Joe Armstrong kind of paved the way for a lot of these guys to be able to talk openly about these issues. I'm sure he did. And as we previously mentioned, in terms of do you think people with maybe anxiety or thoughts that they thought were strange or not normal kind of found pop punk as an outlet, I wonder if people that 
felt uncomfortable with their sexual identity found comfort in this subculture of people because I think it's always been a pretty accepting, open group in terms of accepting people for who they are and kind of celebrating somebody's uniqueness or differences, you know? Yeah, I think pop punk has been very progressive. And I think part of that is because of people like Billy Joe Armstrong who've paved the way. And he also probably felt comfortable at some point writing a song like this because he felt like his community was accepting of it. Track number 12, Amenius Sleepus. This is the one song on the album that was written by Mike Durnt, the bassist. One of the only songs on the album that was not written by Billy Joe Armstrong. And this one's also about a friendship, right? Rather than a relationship? Yeah, I think it's pretty clear that this one is about reconnecting with a friend that you lost touch with. And it was interesting because parts of it seemed like it was a friendly, positive reconnection. And part of it felt like it was almost a negative one. Like, oh, you guys have gone your separate ways and maybe one of you has fallen down a bad path. We kind of discussed this briefly during the brand new episode when we were talking about how the song brought back these memories of old friendships and old parties. And you thought about those old times you had and about reconnecting with people and discussing those old times. And it is this very nostalgic feeling. And I think it's extremely relevant today during quarantine. I feel like a very popular thing is trying to reconnect with people who you haven't had a chance to talk to because now you have more time to actually do that. Right. Uh, so it felt very relevant listening to it today. This feeling doesn't really come across in the song. It's kind of this song's more just matter of fact about an interaction or, or run in with an old friend. But. I would say for the most part, those interactions, those catch-up phone calls or texts, there's a bit of a rush of emotion that comes with that. A positive rush, I would say. Absolutely. I'm not sure Mike Durnt felt that on this song or not. Yeah, it could be positive or negative, but it does make you just think about those people that you either grew up with or old neighbors, old family friends, people you went to school with. And I do often wonder, like, what happened to those people? Social media makes it easier to spy in on people a little bit. It depends on how much stuff they post or if they even have social media. That's something interesting that I think we can safely assume Green Day never had. And it's a weird thing that we do have it where you still feel connected to people that you might not have interacted with personally or on a personal level in quite some time. But you still know oh, they got engaged, or they got married, or they got a new dog. And there's a portion of that that's really cool and great, but the negative, I think, is you don't reach out as much as maybe you should or you would like because you feel like you already know everything that's going on in their life when, you know, you just know the superficial, surface-deep stuff. Yeah, I think it was more novel for them to reconnect with somebody Whereas for us, it's a little bit easier to stay in touch, I think is what you're saying. 
Yeah, which is why this song was a little more interesting for them. But I think it still carries a lot of weight today. Definitely. Another theme that I got out of this song in the lines, and now I think I'm sick and I want to go home. A lot of bands that we've talked about, Simple Plan, Blink-182, Fall Out Boy, there is some comfort in being home. But a lot of those bands also talked about how difficult it is to be home. Like Simple Plan, they had songs about how it was terrible to be trapped at home. Green Day, same thing. In this song, they talk about how being home is comforting, is a familiar feeling. But earlier, there are songs about how you're bored and you're stuck at home and there's nothing to do and you feel like you're trapped. So it's interesting how a lot of these pop punk bands have almost a complicated relationship with their homes. I guess home will always be there for you. You can you can complain about, oh, this, my small town sucks, my high school friends suck, but there's always that comforting feeling to be able to know that that stuff isn't going away. When we were away at school, or at least when I was away at school, I would always think, I love being at school, and when I would go home, I would wish I was back at school. Like I remember we used to have a month-long winter break, and that felt like an eternity. But now, it's like, I would love a month at home just hanging out with my parents, celebrating holidays and stuff like that. It's just something you might not always realize in the current moment, but maybe in, in this song, Mike Durant's reflecting back on whether this interaction with somebody from his past made that thought occur again in his head, like, oh, I, I would like to go home, or maybe I should call my folks or something. Track 13, In the End, by Linkin Park. I mean, Green Day. Like that? That was awesome, dude. Most albums so far, Mike, I've mentioned there's one aggressive mosh pit song. In the end is the mosh pit song of this album. Fast beats, lot of energy, has to be the song. I have seen Green Day, actually I think I just saw them one time, and they probably didn't play this song, but I'm sure back when they were first starting out, I think you're definitely right, this would have been a song that would have had everybody going crazy, opening the pit up. So I think this song's about two people who aren't really meant to be together, you're kind of settling for someone who's not right for you, or a temporary relationship, brings up same vibes that we got from a couple Sum 41 songs. We spoke briefly about an SR-71 song. You know the relationship isn't working. It's just you're biding your time. Yeah. So Billy Joe Armstrong wrote this song about his mom and a new husband of hers. Billy Joe Armstrong's real father passed away when he was like 10 or 11 years old. And I believe that his mom had a number of boyfriends and she eventually married this guy that I don't think he and his siblings got along with. So this was about their relationship. He was seemingly very abusive to her and was very mean to her and they didn't really get along. And he just kept thinking like, oh, is this really going to last? What's going to happen to you when it falls apart? I don't want to be there to pick up the pieces. And it kind of captures this tumultuous relationship. That goes back to my point that it would appear Billy Joe does really love and respect his mom and wants what is best for her. 
in in this case, I guess he didn't think that she was getting what she deserved. Yeah, he's clearly concerned for her and was concerned enough to write this song about a seemingly bad relationship that she was in. I did find it curious that, you know, we just went through my favorite song, When I Come Around, and this song also has the line, I hope I won't be there in the end if you come around. So a lot of coming around on this album. (laughs) A lot of coming around. Track number 14, F.O.D. Did they just spell food wrong? That's some food for thought. Something's on my mind. It's been for quite some time. It's time I'm on to you. So where's the other face? The face I heard before. Your head trips boring me. Let's do the bridge we torched 2,000 times before. This time we'll blast it all to hell. I've had this burning in my guts now for so long. My belly's aching now to say. I like this song because it's definitely different sounding. It starts out acoustic, kind of slow. And then halfway through the song, it becomes actually the heaviest song in the album. So it's this huge contrast. I think it almost reminds me a little bit of that one Fall Out Boy song, Calm Before the Storm, where it started out a little bit slower. And then all of a sudden, this very loud, aggressive bridge came in with that layered screaming. So it was, it was cool. It's, it's definitely different from the rest of the songs on this album. I appreciate a nice slow album ending song, but I also appreciate when bands end it on an upbeat high note. And this one, it manages to do both of those things and effectively too. And it's hard for me to choose whether I like the first half or the second half better. I just think the song as a whole is is very good, very enjoyable. In the song, he's talking about, I assume, breaking up with somebody after a very bad relationship. In fact, I think it actually follows nicely from the song before it in the end, where you're talking about a bad relationship, this might be his response. Okay, well, this is how I would end said relationship. Right. And it's almost like he had joy in ending something so terrible, where normally if you're ending a relationship, it's a very difficult, sad thing. Mm -hmm. It almost reminded me of the feeling of quitting a terrible job and how usually that's a very uncomfortable thing, but some people take pride in having a big blowout exit from a bad job. It's funny you should mention that because there is a line in the song, let's nuke the bridge we torched 2,000 times before. Yeah. This time we'll blast it all to hell. It's been so terrible for so long and it's just this burning bridge. People always say when you're switching jobs or leaving a job, oh, don't burn your bridges. But it's like if you hate this job, you never want to come back. 
if you just storm out or curse out your boss, then you pretty much solidify that they won't want you back either. <laughs> yeah, it was a cool song. I felt like it had a couple different meanings. This was another, I guess, not misheard lyric, Keenan, but just something that I never really caught on to. The song is called F.O.D. And there's a line that says, I'm taking pride in telling you to F off and die. Whoa. At a young age, I never, I was just like, F.O.D., okay, that must mean something. I never made that connection. It's right there in the song. It's F off and die. (laughs) That's so funny. I never picked up on that. I was Googling meaning, like seeing if there was any sort of article or interview. Then I read the lyrics and it's like, oh, it's right there. <laughs> Literally right in front of your face. So yeah, a little hidden hidden message that I should have caught on to years ago, but never did until just this week. Yeah, what a little gem. Talking about another little gem, there's a hidden track on this album as well, which I guess we're going to consider track 15. Is that right? Sure, yeah. All by myself. I went to your house. The second song on the album that's not written by Billy Joe Armstrong, this one was written by the drummer Trey Cool. So nowadays on Spotify, it's just listed as another song. But on the original album release, I think a couple minutes went by at the end of FOD. And then if you let your CD or your record keep playing, or I guess cassette too in 94, um, this song would come on. So it's a hidden track, I guess. I thought it was sort of a funny way to end the album. I think it almost sounds like a totally improvised song to me. Like they were like, oh, let's just sit down Trey Cool and start strumming something on the guitar and see what he comes up with. I think you're right because there's laughter at the beginning, almost like they're kind of putting him up to something. Yeah. And then he just goes into it. And it's not like the lines are anything incredible. It's just kind of a fun little catchy ditty. Do you like when bands do this sort of thing? I do. You wouldn't rather have it just ended with FOD? I like it. I think it's kind of cool to have a little Easter egg in there. Okay. So, Mike, why do you think this album is so significant? So we talked about a lot in the beginning, Keenan, how at the time of its release, people conceded that it was very catchy and overwhelmingly positive reviews for it being a great album. But there was still the debate of, Well, it's not punk, it's not pop, and it's kind of started off this conversation of if an album goes mainstream, if it wins a Grammy for Alternative Album of the Year, if the songs are played consistently on the radio, is it still punk or is it pop? And it's like, the answer I keep coming back to, which I think the members of Green Day have come back to as well, is why does it really matter? Yeah, who cares? If you enjoy what it sounds like if you enjoy the songs on the album does it really matter if other people know about them as well i think it kind of makes it a more enriching experience to be able to talk about it with more people i'm sure if we did more research we could write books and books about 
the albums that came before this one that influenced Green Day and other bands of their time. But I think in terms of our interest in this genre, I think this was our foundation, our keystone, if you will. Yeah, there's no doubt that this album and Green Day as a whole helped to define pop punk. This is largely considered one of the first, if not the first, pop punk album of all time. And I would say that all the bands that we've discussed so far, and probably all the bands that we will discuss, consider Green Day to be one of their major influences. I think we actually read that the majority of the ones that we've discussed before actually listed Green Day as an influence. Yeah, the fact that Green Day's been around since 1987, and, you know, this was 94, but a lot of the bands that came around in the late 90s, early to mid-2000s, they were at their most impressionable time right when this album came out. And I'm pretty sure I saw a CM Punk interview from a couple years ago. You know, he was always the punk kid in school. He was had crazy hair, had piercings, had tattoos. And he said one year he went back to school or he came back from a break or something and everybody was listening to Green Day and he was like a cool kid. So I think it kind of played that role in pop culture at the time. Yeah, it was a big transition from underground or less popular music to all of a sudden the mainstream. I think it also changed the general projection of music almost out of the grunge phase into a more alternative phase, if that makes sense. Because you have the grunge bands out of Seattle in the late 80s, early 90s, Kurt Cobain dies, and then there's kind of this void, I guess you could say, in the music that the mainstream adopts as like the next big thing. And I think this was the transition from, okay, well, we're done with grunge. This pop punk thing is pretty cool. And then from there, I think the genre really had its moment in the sun. Yeah, and it just blew up from there. There's no doubt about that. So I think for me, whether I knew it at the time or not, this was the first pop punk I really listened to. I can't say at the age of seven, eight, nine that I fully embrace this music. In fact, it seemed like it was something that I wasn't really supposed to be listening to, which actually made it a little bit more interesting and probably a little more attractive to me. But this was my first immersion into pop punk. I listened to these guys and I liked it. And then from there, a couple of years later, I discovered other bands like Blink and Good Charlotte, Sum 41, but they introduced me to the genre. So I would say that Green Day probably kicked off that early obsession for me. Yeah, I think if you can remember or if you can't remember, at the end of the day, whoever ended up giving you and Shane the CD, you owe them a great deal of gratitude because I remember going over to your house when we were younger, like six or seven years old, and Chelsea was obsessed with Hanson. And <laughs> yeah. you were trying to play me Hanson songs. Oh, man. And I was like, I probably was like, oh, this is awesome. But I'll say that I also love Hanson. So, you know. Oh, no, no. I'm, I'm just saying <laughs> we could be discussing a BB Mac album right now if not for this <laughs> album coming into your life. <laughs> and on next week's uh, episode, we'll be discussing Bewitched's breakthrough album. Uh-oh. <laughs> Love that song. Yeah, this album really set me on the right course, Mike. Hey, 
it's always fun to revisit that old Green Day album. I can't believe how young I was when I was listening to that, Mike. <laughs> it is kind of crazy. Like, why would anybody let me listen to that? Your parents tried their best, but they couldn't keep you from becoming who you were meant to become. I was way too punk rock for them at the time. <laughs> but it's a great album, and it's obviously one of the really defining albums of pop punk. Super grateful for it. Paved the way for a lot of really important musical artists within this world. This pop punk world. So that was a really good one, Mike. We did a really good job with that one. Yeah, we did a great job. Let's hope we do as good of a job next week when we discuss All American Rejects self-titled album. Let's swing, swing on out of here, Keenan. If you want to get in touch with us, we're poppunkproject at gmail.com, poppunkproject on Twitter and Instagram, and patreon.com slash poppunkproject. Thank you guys for listening. To every member of the Pop Punk Posse, we thank you again. We're so happy you're here listening with us. We hope you have the time of your lives. From Green Day, good riddance. That's right. It is Green Day. Mm-hmm.